Okay, um, I thought this evening to take a, a study uh, from uh, a character that just appears once in our Bible and yet seems to dominate uh, as we consider the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, so I want to take a reading from uh, Genesis, first of all, and we want to read the, uh, the short account of a man called Melchizedek. Now, there's a lot that could be said about Melchizedek, and the New Testament says uh, a great deal about him, but uh, we want to learn some simple and, I judge, uh, very timely lessons from this man. The story is found in Genesis chapter 14, and uh, we're reading at uh, the end of the story where Abraham has gone out and he has uh, conquered the kings in battle. He has retrieved Lot and his goods, and he's making his way back southward, and he's about to be met by the king of Sodom. So we pick up the story there at verse number 17. So this is Genesis chapter 14 and verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him, after his return from the slaughter of Kedeleomer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shava, which is the king's deal. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the most high God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Get me, give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to the shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou should say, I have made Abram rich, save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, Anar, Eskol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. And let's just read for connection the first verse of the next chapter. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. This is a very short appearance in a, an extensive story that is dominated by the man that we know so well from the Old Testament, Abraham, and just a few verses, really verses 18, uh, 19, and 20, that tell us about a man called Melchizedek. And if it wasn't for the rest of the Bible, we might read it and think nothing more about him. But I want to read from a psalm, and this is Psalm 110. It's a psalm that we should know very well because it is the psalm that is most quoted 
in the New Testament. In fact, it is the most quoted part of the Old Testament by the New Testament writers. So it is an exceeding important psalm. Let's just take the time to read the whole psalm. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up his head. Now let's just look at verse 4 again. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Just as we leave this psalm, do you notice, please, the two parts to the psalm. Verse 1, the Lord is speaking. And here is an oracle of the Lord. The Lord has said, and it's concerning the king, sit thou at my right hand. Verse number 4, the Lord speaks again. This time it is an oath, not an oracle, but an oath. And this time it's to do with the priesthood of the Messiah. So Messiah as king, verse number one. Messiah as priest, verse number four. Priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we'll just take a, a sample reading then from Hebrews and chapter seven. We won't read everything that the book of Hebrews tells us about this uh, man, Melchizedek, but let's just take a sample reading that will help us in our study this evening. So Hebrews chapter 7 and verse number 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abram give a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was. Now we'll just pause here, and I will re uh, refer to other passages in the book of Hebrews as we continue our study this evening. Now, I, I just want to, uh, I, I hope, thrill our souls with these words. Uh, consider how great this man was. And we want to take those words that were used about Melchizedek, and we want to, as the Holy Spirit teaches us, consider how great this man, that is Jesus Christ, today is. 
Melchizedek in the record of scripture was a great man. And Melchizedek was made like unto our Lord Jesus. Well, how much greater is our Lord Jesus? And what I want is that what we uh, will think about this evening will be a comfort to us and will strengthen us as we focus our minds again upon the glories of our Lord Jesus Christ. Consider how great this man is. Now, as we come to it, the story is, uh, I suppose, some people, uh, they wonder about it because they say, is this the Son of God in the Old Testament? I mean, it seems strange what is said about him. It says here in Hebrews that he was without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days or end of life. But what we're to come to understand is this, that the Holy Spirit, as Moses was recording the story in Genesis chapter 14, he deliberately overruled the way that Moses recorded the story. And so into the story steps a man. We don't read of his birth and we don't read of his death. He just steps into the story. And in this way, he is made like unto the Son of God. And so that is how uh, we are to understand this passage. There was a real man, a real human. He was called Melchizedek. But he was made like unto the Son of God. And in this, we look to him and we learn so many lessons about the glories of our Lord Jesus. So that is what I want to do just in this uh, simple uh, study this evening. Now, just to remind yourselves again of the, the storyline, uh, here was Abraham who had gotten news that uh, his nephew Lot, ha who had gone down to live, in uh, the land of Sodom and near Gomorrah had been taken uh, a captive as a prisoner and Abraham had come to the rescue. He had uh, gone after that army. They had gone far into the north. They had traveled many, many miles. And now having fought the battle and won the victory, they are coming southward again and they are in victory, but they are exhausted. They are exultant, and yet they are physically weak and they're vulnerable. And that's just the point that we want to remember a little later on. Because Abram was at the crest of the wave, as it were, in his experience. He had won this great victory. And yet, here was a point where he was at, a, he was weak because he was hungry, he was weary, and he was about to be tested by the king of Sodom with all his sweet-talking words and his offer to Abram that would have compromised Abram's faith 
in God. So that's the, that's the storyline. And into that story comes this man. We don't know anything before it. We don't hear anything after it. This man, Melchizedek, and he meets the need of Abraham. And that's where we leave the story. And we never hear of him again. And so that's really just what we want to look at this evening. And we want to see Christ as seen through Melchizedek. And as I've said, Melchizedek just appears again, his name, in one of the Psalms, Psalm 119. But that Psalm becomes the center of the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. And time and time and time again, the Holy Spirit through the, the apostles will refer back to Psalm 119 to show that the Lord Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, is now set down in heaven upon the right hand of the Father and will wait there until his enemies are made his footstool. So that's where I want to begin our study this evening. I want to think about Melchizedek and his sovereignty. Melchizedek and his sovereignty. We read here two titles concerning Melchizedek, and one of them is the meaning of his name, and the other is the meaning of the city where he ruled. Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and he was also the king of Salem, and we know that that is the, the second half of the word Jerusalem, and Salem, which uh, comes from the same uh, root as shalom. It means peace. So here is the king of righteousness, he is the king of peace. And what we want to remember is this, that this man, Melchizedek, was a royal priest. He was a king. And what I want to do is just at the beginning of our study this evening to project our minds to the future and to remind our hearts that no matter how much our world seems in turmoil today. There's anxiety among the nations, economic collapse that they're concerned about just around the corner because of the, the things that have taken place in the past six months. And there is a great moral decline in our world. And our world is shaping up for things that we were going to study this weekend and into next week had I been able to come over and to have been with you. But in the will of God, we'll look at that another time. But the world is shaping up for what the Bible calls the man of sin. And the end times are almost upon us. But let's just look beyond the darkness of those end times and look beyond the time that God calls the time of Jacob's trouble and the persecution that is yet ahead for the nation of Israel. And let's look beyond it all to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to this world in great glory. Says the Bible, they shall look upon him 
whom they pierced. They shall mourn for him. And our Lord Jesus is now rejected by the world disowned, by the many still neglected, and yet by the few enthroned. But soon he'll come in glory. The hour is drawing near, for the crowning day is coming by and by. And that's what I want to thrill our hearts with, that anticipation that our Lord Jesus is coming back to this world to reign. And here we have in Melchizedek an understanding of the kind of kingdom that the Lord Jesus is going to establish. First of all, it will be a kingdom of righteousness, says Isaiah. In Isaiah 32, he says, a king shall reign in righteousness. And that will be the character of the kingdom of Messiah. It will be a kingdom of righteousness. Our world will be governed in a righteous and a moral and in an equitable way. It will be a wonderful kingdom. And it is also a kingdom that is established upon peace. King of righteousness and a king of peace. Now those are two things, as I've said, that we don't know very much about in our world, sadly today. And nations suffer because they have abandoned righteousness. And they suffer because they have abandoned peace. Many of the problems in our world, even right now, even in Europe. And migration of people is because governments have engaged in unnecessary wars. They have abandoned the principles of peace. But our Lord Jesus is going to bring peace to this world. Indeed, it was the, the word of the angels to the shepherds uh, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus. Peace, they said, toward all men. And what a wonderful thing it is to know that the Lord Jesus has come and will achieve peace upon earth. There's so many scriptures in the Old Testament that speak of the peace of the kingdom of the Messiah. And we're looking forward to that. And we know that it is certain. But that kingdom of peace will also be built upon righteousness. And here is another of the lovely things that brings us right back to this man, Melchizedek. Long before David took a Jebusite city, we have no idea what its name was at that time, and long before he turned its name again back to the ancient name of Salem and made the compound name Jerusalem established upon peace. Long before that took place 3,000 years ago, there was a man who was already a king, and he was ruling over that city. At that time, it was known as simply Salem, peace, the city of peace. And so that brings us back to consider that the Lord Jesus, who was crucified 
outside the city of Jerusalem in this lovely picture that we have of the Lord Jesus in Melchizedek, he will return to that city, that self-same city of Salem. As we know today, Jerusalem. And he will be received with peace by his repentant people. And we know the storyline of that, how beautiful it is, how the nation will at last acknowledge nationally, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And that nation shall, in the words of Psalm 24, they shall lift up the heads and they will invite the Lord to come in. The Lord strong in battle, he will come in. And into that city, out of which he was once rejected, and outside of which he hung upon a cross, the Lord Jesus shall be acknowledged, not only as the King of kings and Lord of lords, but as the Son of David, seated at last upon the throne of David, fulfilling the ancient promise given to David 3,000 years ago that one of his sons would sit upon the throne continually. So I hold that before you again as a comfort and an encouragement as we said those lovely words, the crowning day is coming by and by. So his sovereignty, he was king of righteousness, king of peace. That's what it says concerning Melchizedek. And that's what will be true of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now just pause for a moment and think how, how strange this is, in a sense. Because this man lived at the time of Abraham. And we're going to think now of a second truth. Not now his sovereignty, but his superiority. And we're going to learn that Melchizedek, in his priesthood, for he was not only a king, but he was also a priest, something that no Judean king could be. He could never be a king and a priest in the Old Testament, but this man was. Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. But as we think of him in his priesthood, Hebrews chapter 7 says that the Melchizedek priest was greater, superior to Aaron and all the priests that came from Aaron's line. And the reason for that was that he was greater even than Abraham. And this is an amazing truth, I think, at least in the wonderful, sovereign, gracious dealing of our God, that there was a man who was bowing, no doubt, to idols in a city that was packed full of pagan temples in Ur of the Chaldees. As far as the archaeologists have told us, at that stage it was a, it was a city port uh, on the Gulf, and it was there at the side of that great river, and it was beautiful be to behold. Perhaps the chief city of its time in that fertile crescent 
that extended between the two rivers. And Abraham, this man who grew up in idolatry, who experienced in his own life the emptiness of worshipping dead idols, the God of glory appears to him. Now you would say to yourself, was the Lord hard up for people when the Lord, God of glory appeared to Abraham? Was it that there was no one else in the world that feared God? Obviously not. Because while the Lord was appearing to Abram in Ur of the Chaldees, who was bowing down to idols, or at least had in his life bowed to images of stone and such like, there already was a man in the land of Canaan, the promised land as we know it today. He was already a king. He was already a priest. And he was already a priest of the Most High God, worshipping the one true God, and his name was Melchizedek. And it leaves me wondering, why didn't the Lord do what he did with Abraham? Why didn't he do it with Melchizedek? Why go to all the trouble of picking a man from a way off in the city of earth, but it shows to me the gracious dealings of our God that he would even reach down into the insignificance of my life and save the likes of me and raise you and I up and make us inheritors of the kingdom of God and sons and daughters of the Lord God Almighty. Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. And the proof of that is given to us here in uh, the record of Scripture because it says that in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse number 4, now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And it tells us in verse 7 that the less is blessed of the greater. So Abraham gave the spoils and Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And it shows in a twofold way that Abraham would give the goods to Melchizedek and Melchizedek would bless Abraham that they were accepting. And it was evident that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. And so here we want to dwell a little more on the superiority of our Lord Jesus Christ as seen in Melchizedek. We've thought of his sovereignty. He will reign. And we thank God for that. But here we have the superiority of the Lord Jesus for in Abraham. Here is the, the father of the nation, the father of the faithful, and yet Melchizedek is greater than he. This was one of the challenges that the disciples brought against, or, or the, the Jews brought against the Lord Jesus. They said, are you greater than our father Abraham? And the Lord said to them, as you remember, before Abraham was, I um, our Lord Jesus Christ is greater, superior to Abraham, the father of the nation. Now, one of the things that we discover is this, that 
in the Lord Jesus, we have a great high priest. Now, on earth, the Lord Jesus could not be a priest. He did many things that were priestly. There were times when he prayed, for example, John chapter 17. And sometimes we speak of it as the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. But really, technically, it's not quite that. Because the Lord Jesus on earth could not act as a priest. And the reason was that he was of the tribe of Judah. And if you read later on a little bit more into Hebrews chapter 7, it will explain that. Our Lord sprang out of Judah. So he could not be a priest on earth, even though he was qualified by his experience on earth. And so we come to understand from Hebrews chapters 4 and 5 that our Lord Jesus today is our great high priest. And he is that because he is now raised from the dead on earth. He could not be a priest because he came from the tribe of Judah. But now on resurrection ground, the Lord Jesus has sat down at the right hand of God in heaven, and God has said to him, in the language of Psalm 110, thou art a priest forever. And he has become a priest in a different order, the order of Melchizedek. And we're going to discover the superiority of that priesthood. Number one, superior in this, that no one is as sympathetic as Jesus. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. And there is no one as sympathetic as the Lord Jesus. We come to understand from Hebrews chapter 4 that we, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And then it goes on to say in that negative way, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are without sin. And we come to appreciate again as we read into chapter 5 that the Lord Jesus was taken from among men. He knew the experience of this world. And when you and I come to God, in our trials and the pressures of life. It's not that we're speaking up into heaven to one who doesn't know what it's like to be on earth. No, our Lord Jesus has been here and he is supremely equipped to sympathize. Now let's follow the argument through. You see, no one can say that God doesn't know what it's like to be poor because the Lord Jesus chose a humble home, the poverty of his early years. No one can say that God doesn't know what it's like to work and to work hard and to be tired because we have all those experiences of the Lord Jesus in his life. He knows what it is to be misunderstood. 
He knows what it is to be misrepresented, for people to tell lies about him, to mock him. He knows what it is not only to be disappointed and let down by friends and betrayed, but he knows what it is to feel his own life to be accomplishing nothing. Even the Old Testament told of Messiah, looking at his life and saying, it seems to be of no avail. That's how he felt. He was truly human. And he knows what it is to suffer. And there is no one who is better suited to sympathize with us than the Lord Jesus. But you say, what does it mean? And, 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 and is there maybe just a limitation here? Because it says that he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So, so maybe it's not just the same. Maybe his experience was not as great as ours, because sure, as the Son of God, he never sinned. We know what it is to sin. But let's just realize that the fact that the Lord Jesus didn't sin and couldn't sin made his sufferings even more intense. You see, you and I, very often in our experience, we, we give up. We're holding out, resisting temptation, and then, well, we just can't resist it anymore. The Lord Jesus resisted temptation to the very end. He never gave up. He never gave in. And so his experience of trial and of weakness and of suffering is deeper than any other human has ever experienced. There is no one, I say, that is as sympathetic as the Lord Jesus. And so you and I can come to him. And yes, there are times and I just say, oh God, I, I, have, I have given up. I've given in. I have sinned in all my weakness. And yet we have a sympathetic, great high priest in the Lord Jesus. He knows what it's like to be here. And he is able to bear our weaknesses. Now, the, the second thing that we discover is this, that there's no one superior to him. If we go back in our minds to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse number 22, it says, By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament or a better covenant. So there's no one more sympathetic than the Lord Jesus. And there's no one who could ever be superior to him. Because Aaron and all the Old Testament high priests, they served under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And there were limitations in that Old Testament. One of them was this. You were always reminded of your sin. And your shortcomings. And every year they had to come before the Lord. And they had to offer again another sacrifice. And those sacrifices in themselves could never take away sins. The law. The law was an external standard for them. 
and as an external standard, it condemned them. But our Lord Jesus has brought us into a new covenant relationship with God. And as you meet to break bread, and as we take that cup, we remind our hearts that the cup is a symbol of a new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's new and it's better and it's superior in every way. It's superior in this way. <coughs> that the law is no longer external, condemning me, but the law by the Spirit is being written in the heart. There is an internal, living, divine being who is molding and shaping us and enabling us to please God. That's one of the terms of this better covenant. The second of the terms is this, that we no longer are distant. We don't have to come through priests and high priests, but in our Lord Jesus Christ, we lift our eyes to heaven. Every sister, every brother, no matter saved a few weeks or saved for 60 years, it makes no difference. We lift our voice in the name of Jesus Christ and we say, Abba, Father, God is our God personally. And the third great uh, advantage of the new covenant is this, that we don't ever have a conscience of sin again because our consciences have made, been made perfect because God says your sins, your iniquities, I will remember no more. And so the Lord Jesus is superior in this. There's no one more sympathetic than him. He has suffered deeper experiences than we could ever suffer. There is no one who is superior to him because he has brought us into a relationship with God on the grounds of a new covenant, a covenant that cannot be broken that depends only upon the value of the blood that was shed at Calvary. And the third thing is this. We read in chapter 7, Hebrews 7, and verse number uh, 24, as it refers to the priests of the Old Testament who lived and died and had to be replaced. But this man, that's the Lord Jesus, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable or an un transferable priesthood. Let's read on. These are lovely words. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost or right to the end of the road, all the way through life, all the way through death, or should the Lord come all the way to glory. Those that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. The Lord Jesus has died, yes but he'll never die again. And so he is superior in this, that no one will succeed him. He is our one great high priest, our only one. We don't need another because no one will ever come after him. He is raised never to die again. So as we come to God and remember that we come through our Lord Jesus, we're thinking of one who is destined to be the king, the king 
of Salem, the king of peace, the king of righteousness, the king of kings and lord of lords, his sovereignty. We come to think of his superiority. Today for us, he appears in the presence of God as our great high priest. And he ministers to us in our weakness. There's no one as sympathetic as he is because he's been down here. He knows what it is to suffer. There's no one superior to him because he has brought us into a relationship with God through his own blood, a relationship that can never be broken. And there's no one who will ever succeed him because he lives in the power of an untransferable priesthood. Now, finally, let's go back to our story uh, in Genesis and think of this, how it comes practically to us in our lives. I want to think of a, a third point then, not just his sovereignty and his superiority, but his support. And, and that's what we all need. I think we all are prepared to acknowledge. Uh, we maybe should acknowledge it more than we do, that we need the constant support, not only of each other and of those who will minister the word to us and of elders who will pray for us and shepherd the flock and of friends and of family. But ultimately, as Christians, we need the support of Christ. As sheep, we need the support of the shepherd, the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. And here in, in this story, I, I want to think back of the various details that took place in the life of Abram whenever he met Melchizedek and see how that teaches us how the Lord Jesus supports us in our temptation. So the first word I want to think about is anticipation. Melchizedek anticipated the need and the vulnerability of Abram. Melchizedek met Abram before Abram met the king of Sodom. Now, I don't want to go into the details. You know them as well as I do. The details of the kind of society that was there in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now bear in mind, Melchizedek knew that as well. It wasn't very far away from where he lived in Salem. So Melchizedek had lived in the land and he knew what it was like to live with neighbors who were wicked in the extreme. So he could sympathize with Abram and he knew the vulnerability of a man coming back, flushed with success, but bodily weak and weary in his mind. And how the devil would use the opportunity to compromise the man. And the king of Sodom is coming with his sweet words of compromise. And he's saying, now come, I'll make you rich. But before the king of Sodom presents the temptation. The king of Salem anticipates it and meets Abram first. Now, I, I love that about the Lord Jesus. 
that he anticipates the troubles and trials that we're going to face in our lives. That's one of the reasons why we have the Bible. It's written for our learning so that whenever we come across things, we'll say, oh, yes, I remember. It says in the Bible. And we, we learn the lesson. And we don't fall. We don't fall into sin because the Bible has anticipated the very kind of trials that we will face. Sometimes it's, it's through uh, someone speaking a word or sending a verse or someone just passing a comment, someone calling at the door. The Lord uses many means to anticipate our weakness. And he intervenes before Abram meets the temptation. Now that's, that should give all of us a certain degree of burden and exercise that we would be used by the Lord in this regard. That God would guide us in our interest and in others to be there at the right time and pass on a word of, uh, of comfort or whatever that will be a blessing to someone else so that they will be strengthened to meet their trials. His anticipation. Then I want to think about his ministration because Abram was met by Melchizedek, but Abram's need was also met by Melchizedek. He was hungry and tired, and Melchizedek brought out to him bread and wine. Now, this is the first mention of bread and wine in our Bible. And it was very practical, no doubt. But we know that that expression, bread and wine, takes on a whole new meaning when we come to our New Testament. Uh, and what a wisdom it was before Abram met the king of Sodom. The king of Salem gave him bread and wine. And meeting his physical needs, he Give him strength to meet the challenges that were coming down the road. Now, I think that's one of the reasons why the Lord Jesus taught his disciples that on the first day of the week, the first thing that we should do is to gather together and we take bread and we take wine. And what we do, of course, the New Testament has lifted to a very high and uh, a holy place because it shows forth the Lord's death until he comes. But it also has this preservative effect in our lives. Before we enter into the rest of the challenges of the, the Sunday or the Monday at work or whatever school, whatever we've got to go to, before we meet the trial, God in his wisdom has anticipated and has ministered to us through the bread and the wine, something that will strengthen us to meet the challenges of another week. Now that's one I judge of the practical uh, benefits of remembering the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a preservative in our lives. And then there is the blessing or the benediction. He anticipates, he ministers to him, and then he blesses him. Now, this became Abram's salvation in a sense, because, and I'm just going to finish at this. 
but let's just consider what he does. If we go back in our uh, minds to what the story said, the first thing that Melchizedek said was this, blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. So he blessed Abram and reminded Abram of his relationship with the Most High God and that God, the God that Abram worshipped, the one true God, was the possessor of everything. How suited that was to his need. Because the king of Sodom was coming with things that looked very attractive. But whenever Abram remembered the words of Melchizedek, what were these trinkets compared with the one who possesses everything? And isn't this what we ought to be doing with each other, reminding each other that our God is an infinite God and the riches that are ours are infinite riches in Jesus Christ. And what are the trinkets and toys of this world compared to the eternal glories that Abram had? And so he blessed Abram and then he blessed God. And because of that, Abram was strengthened both physically and spiritually to meet the challenge and the temptation. Now, just as I, I conclude and I pray, I just want to remind our hearts again the, the need for us to think both physically and spiritually. And that's what Melchizedek did. Sometimes we think, well, all, all people need is a little spiritual pep talk. And, and, of course, it is spiritual things that are of most value. But you see, Melchizedek, he knew the needs of the body as well. And he met the need of the man physically first. And then he blessed him spiritually. Now, we see that often in the life of the Lord Jesus. He also bore in mind the physical needs of his disciples. And let us remember that and uh, see in our lives opportunities to help people out physically by maybe giving them a rest from something that they have to do all the time, just to let their mind rest and so that they, they might be recovered not only physically but strengthened spiritually as well. So let's just... As we close, think of the words that the Bible says concerning Melchizedek, this little known character. Consider how great this man was. He was a great man. And as we look through the lens of Melchizedek to the infinite figure of our Lord Jesus who stands behind him, we say this evening, consider how great this man is. We have in Jesus Christ a great high priest who comes after the order of Melchizedek. He is sovereign. He is seated on the throne of his father. And one day he will be seated on earth on the throne of his father David. He is superior in every way. That's the, the theme, as you know, of Hebrews. Every part of it. Christ is better and greater and supreme in every way to everything that has gone before. And he is 
one who supports us in his daily ministration. Sometimes he uses Christians to do it. Other times he comes to us himself. And personally, he sustains us in our times of weakness and of need. Remember that we need the great high priest for our weakness. For our wickedness, we need the Lord Jesus in a different role. That's the subject of 1 John chapters 1 and into chapter 2. In our wickedness, when we sin, we have an advocate. But so that we don't sin, we have a great high priest who intercedes and supports us in our weakness so that we don't fall and so that we don't sin. So I leave that with you and we'll look to the Lord for his blessing. Let us pray. Father, we come now again to thee in the evening of another day. We want to thank thee for thy rich blessings to us. We thank thee for salvation, for ever coming to know and to trust in thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank thee for his love for us and care for us, not only saving us, but keeping us, and for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, indwelling us and sealing us, uh, so that one day we shall be not only redeemed spiritually, but physically shall be like thy Son and with Christ forever. We thank thee for the reminder that Christ will come again and shall reign and we shall reign with him and in the meantime we thank thee as we have looked at this little known character Melchizedek we have seen the greater character who lies behind it and our Lord Jesus Christ that great and sympathizing savior that he is and the one who helps us and strengthens us in our temptation so we pray for thy people uh, and ask for each and every one of them in their personal need, those who are older and perhaps are uh, suffering loneliness, being cut off from uh, those that they know and love, those that are younger, uh, maybe the frustrations of not being able to go to work or those who are uh, back at work. We pray for each in their own circumstances and do pray for thy blessing to be upon thy people in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.